Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.2bcmtv.org or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. Church, let me invite you to take your Bibles and to turn with me, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We are in a study together of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, and we come to chapter 2 this morning where our attention will be devoted to verses 1 to 12. And as we enter now here into chapter 2, we come to what is really a transition here in this letter where the Apostle Paul, he is moving now from his opening greeting and thanksgiving where we've been for the last several weeks in chapter 1 and now in chapter 2 here he's going to transition. He's going to pivot into what is really now the main body of the letter. So he's been in introduction and greeting and now he's really moving into the content, the main uh, body of this letter. And in verses 1 to 12, we find something very unique. We find that Paul is uniquely here self-descriptive. This is extremely personal here in these verses, as we'll see. In fact, this passage, it actually provides for us one of the most personal glimpses into the heart of Paul that we find anywhere in the New Testament. I was thinking this week that if, if you might say that nothing reveals the brilliant mind and intellect of Paul like the book of Romans, right, then nothing really reveals the pastoral heart of Paul like the letter of 1 Thessalonians. And Paul, in this letter, he is uniquely personal, he's uniquely pastoral, as we'll see here today, and so... Beloved, I I found myself this week in my own study being uniquely challenged and encouraged as one of your pastors because this passage, it provides many great insights into effective pastoral ministry. It provides a compelling example of what spiritual leadership should be. And so I, I just found myself freshly this week convicted and challenged to be more faithful, to be more Paul like in my own. Uh, ministry, but verses 1 to 12, while being extremely personal and pastoral, they aren't primarily about Paul. No. In fact, they point beyond him. They point beyond him to the Lord Jesus Christ. In a recent book entitled, Why I Love the Apostle Paul, Author John Piper writes this in his introduction. I have lived with the Apostle Paul for over 60 years. Admired him. Envied him. Feared him. Pounded on him. Memorized him. Wept over his sufferings. Soared with him. Sunk to the brink of death with him. I spent eight years preaching through his longest letter. 
imitated him. Huh. Imitated him. In ten lifetimes, I would not come close. But Paul is not God. He is not the highest authority. Only Christ is the Himalayan touchstone. Christ never sinned. Paul shares not only my humanity, but also my sinful humanity. But oh, what heights of greatness and Godwardness he attained, most of it through suffering. I love him for the Christ he shows me. And beloved, that's exactly what we see here today in the example of Paul. And so my prayer is that we would be freshly convicted of Paul's example here and see Jesus. So let's look at it together. If you have your place there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, would you stand as we read this passage together? Beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we, were, we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been proved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. You can be seated. What makes a passage like this one in verses 1 to 12 difficult is not only trying to discern the immediate personal application, because again, at first it seems so pastorally focused and in fact, so personal for Paul and his relationship to this particular church. So how, how then does this apply to me? That's one of the challenges, the, the personal application. But also, I think, of trying to understand the, the background, the context that has led Paul to write verses 1 to 12. Because after all, why did he write this? Why is he prompted to pen this very personal, very heartfelt section here? And beloved, I, th I think that's where we need to begin this morning because 
before we can really consider the contemporary application of this passage, we need to first understand its context. So what's the background here to verses 1 to 12? And I think there's really two clues here in verses 1 to 12 that, that show us why Paul wrote these verses. The first one, clue number one, notice, is that repeated refrain that we see there. Notice in verse 1 where Paul says, For you yourselves know. In fact, six times we see this similar repeated refrain. Six times. Not not only in verse 1, but notice as well, look at verse 2. But though we had already suffered, had been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God. Or verse 5, where we never came with words of flattery, as you know. Verse 9, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. Or verse 10, notice he says, you are witnesses. Verse 11, even, for you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each of you. So notice what Paul is doing here. He's, he's appealing to their, their own memory, what, what the Thessalonians remember and recall about his team and their initial coming to Thessalonica. You, you yourselves know, brothers. So he's reminding them. But why? Why is he doing this? What does he want them to recall and remember? Which leads us to the second clue, I think, that helps us understand the background here of these verses. Clue number two, notice here, is Paul's own self-defense. In verses 1 to 12, if you notice, they appear to be very defensive, don't they? He's defending himself. He's defending his reputation. He's defending his own character and motives. And and he's reminding the Thessalonians of how he ministered to them when he was with them. He's reminding them of what they already know about him. We see this Self-defense here in several negative statements he makes. Notice in verse 3, for example, he says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Verse 4, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Verse 5, we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor a pretext for greed. Verse 6, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. So notice these negative statements. Notice how defensive Paul is here. You see that. So why does he do this? Why, why is he taking the time to remind them of his motives and his manner of coming? I mean, is this just, is this just pride on Paul's part? Is this his ego on display here? Well, No. In verses 1 to 12, it seems that the occasion that has prompted Paul to write this personal self-defense is that Paul is being slandered by his enemies. That's the reason he's so defensive here. Apparently, Timothy's report, remember back over in chapter 3 and verse 6 to the Apostle Paul, remember it brought some good news about how well the church at Thessalonica was doing. Chapter 3 and verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought 
us the good news of your faith. So Timothy's report had brought Paul good news. However, this report, it seems, also brought some disturbing news as well. Acts chapter 17, if you remember Paul and his team, they've been forced prematurely to leave behind this newly planted church in Thessalonica due to persecution. And so it appears now that Paul's enemies have taken advantage of this abrupt departure, and it appears now that his enemies are using it as an opportunity to discredit him. They're sowing suspicion about his motives. They're questioning his character and his integrity. They're raising concerns. Why hasn't he come back to visit you yet? Paul's a charlatan. He's a, he's a swindler. But all of that really in an attempt to ultimately discredit the gospel and destroy this church. And so Paul comes here to his own defense. But let's be very clear about something here. It isn't out of mainly self-preservation. Paul's main aim here isn't just something personal. No, his, his main aim is the preservation of the gospel. And beloved, I think this is a key lesson here for us. That the motivation and the manner of our ministry will determine the impact of our message. The motivation, the manner, the way in which we do ministry, it's going to determine the impact of the message. Because if you can malign the messenger, you can undermine the message. That's what's going on here. And friends, isn't that what we're seeing today? This is so relevant. We're so many are falling in ministry due to sexual, financial scandals, abusive, domineering pastoral leadership. And when that happens, it undermines the message. But this isn't just true of pastors. This is true of churches. This is true of individual Christians as well. The, the manner in which you live your life Verse 12, we exhorted each one of you to walk in a manner worthy of God. You, you discredit the messenger, you undermine the message. Gospel proclaiming, gospel living, they have to go together. And that's Paul's main concern here. So, notice, in verses 1 to 5, he's going to defend his motivation for ministry, and there's two of them. Two motivations. Number one, the first one we're going to see in verses 3 and 4. And then the second he's going to show us in verses 5 to 8. So two motivations for ministry. And then sprinkled throughout, but looking primarily, as we'll see in verses 7 to 11, we're going to see Paul's manner of ministry, the way in which he did and did not go about his ministry. And then finally, we're going to close in and look on Paul's message. What was, what was his message to them? So three headings I want you to see this morning. Number one, Paul's motivation for ministry. Number two, Paul's manner of ministry. And then number three, Paul's message 
in ministry. And beloved, I think this will serve our church well uh, in our own motivation and manner of ministry. First, I want you to see Paul's motivation. His motivation in ministry in verses 1 to 8. Notice in verse 1, look there, Paul, he begins by reminding them of his coming to them. Verse 1, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. So he's reminding them that his arrival in Thessalonica, though it was shorter than he had hoped it would be, it wasn't in vain. It wasn't empty. No, remember, if you recall, Acts 17, Paul preaches the gospel and the Holy Spirit moves in power. And, and people are radically converted. So much so, we saw last week, that the reputation of these Thessalonians is beginning to spread throughout all of Greece. And so, it wasn't in vain, but there's something specific here he wants them to remember about his coming. Look, look there at verse 2, that, that his coming, his arrival in Thessalonica, it had been preceded by some serious suffering. Some serious suffering for the sake of the gospel in Philippi. Look there, verse 2. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So Acts 16, if you remember, Paul and Silas, they, they had, we saw this last week, they had been attacked and, and imprisoned in the city of Philippi. They're stripped, they're beaten. Paul says they've been shamefully treated. This was all just prior to coming to Thessalonica, and yet in the midst of all of that, they, they press on. And so with their backs still bleeding, wounds still open, they arrive in Thessalonica, where they experience now even more opposition and conflict. And yet in verse 2, look there, we had boldness. We had boldness in declaring to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And friends, this boldness, it wasn't from Paul. This, this just wasn't his temperament. This wasn't just his you know, personality profile. No. Verse 2 we had boldness in our God. God had supernaturally empowered them with boldness. There was no human explanation for this. Not after what they had just experienced in Philippi. No, this boldness, it was from God, he says. And so listen, Paul is no phony. And he's saying, do you remember what we went through Back in Philippi, those aren't the actions of a charlatan. No, swindlers who are just trying to make a buck, who are just trying to, you know, gain a following, they don't act like this. No, we came with boldness in much conflict. And so apparently, Paul's reputation is on the line here. His character is in question. Paul's a con man. They're saying, and he says, if that were true, if, if I were a fraud, then I wouldn't have come to you after what I just experienced. But I pressed on, 
and, and I continue proclaiming the gospel with boldness. Why? What, what would motivate him or anyone, for that matter, to do this in much conflict? And in verses 3 to 8, he gives two reasons. Two motivations here. And beloved, these two motivations, I think, are extremely insightful for us. Number one, motivation number one, notice, is his heart for the gospel of God. Paul loves the gospel. It is central in his motivation here. Look at verse 3. For, so now he gives us the reason why he was bold in coming to them. Our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So what then was Paul's motivation in coming to them? What motivated him? Well, first, notice in verse 3, he begins by describing how he didn't come to them. What wasn't his motivation? Look there in verse 3. He says, our appeal, it doesn't spring, notice these three things, from error, from impurity, or from any attempt to deceive. So verse 3, these would have been wrong motives. This wasn't why, this wasn't how he came to them, he's saying, Error, an attempt to hide the truth from you. Impurity, that word almost always refers to sexual impurity, so we didn't do it for sex. Or any attempt to deceive. We weren't trying to manipulate you. We weren't trying to deceive you. There was nothing corrupt about my message. There was nothing corrupt about my motives. Don't listen to what you're hearing about me. This wasn't my motivation. And friends, I, I think there is an invaluable lesson here, right here already for us, because I dare say that many of the problems that are plaguing evangelical Christianity today stem from these. Error, impurity, deception. And so much of what is done in the name of Christ, so much of what is done in the name of Christian ministry is actually done with the wrong motives. And Paul says, that's not my motivation. So what was? Verse 4, look there. But, so the contrast, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God. So what was his motivation? What gave him the boldness? Paul views himself as someone who has been entrusted with the gospel. He's been entrusted with the gospel. He, he was a steward of the gospel. He wasn't self-appointed. He was called and commissioned by God. And so he was accountable to God. And so notice his primary motivation, it wasn't to please man, it was to please God. That's his primary motivation. We aim to please God, he says. My friends, it doesn't get any more God-centered than this. In fact, just 
notice this entire passage is so God-centered. I mean, in just verses 1 to 12, God is mentioned here no less than nine times by name. No, his entire life, his entire ministry, it was all about him. It was all about the glory of God. and, and, And that's what Paul is saying. I did it for him. This is why he did what he did. It wasn't to please men. It was to please God. And his motivation was always, always the glory of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if anyone has doubts about that, Paul says, just look at my back. So motivation number one, it's his heart for the gospel of God. But motivation number two, notice, it's his heart for the people of God. Look at verses 5 to 8. Paul wasn't only motivated by his desire to please God, although that was his primary motivation, but there was a second motivation. Look at verse 5. For, reason number two, we never came with words of flattery, as you know nor with a pretext of greed, God is witness, nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, meaning we weren't in it for ourselves. So what were we in it for? Verse 7, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you Not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. So in verses 5 to 8, notice Paul says that my motivation, it wasn't only because I had been entrusted with the gospel. My motivation also is because of my love for you. Verse 8 affectionately desirous of you. You had become very dear to us. So Paul's motivation wasn't just being passionate about the gospel but in some kind of abstract message. No, no. His passion here was because he had been entrusted with this message for people. He, He He had a heart to reach people with the gospel. He loved people and he wanted them to be saved. He wanted them to be transformed by the gospel. That's his motivation. And so my friends, in our ministry, do we love people? And his heart here is on full display. But notice first again... Just like he did in verses 3 and 4, he reminds them of how he he didn't come to them. Look at verses 5 to 7. He never came, he says, with words of flattery. We, We weren't trying to butter people up to get something out of you. Or, or he says in verse 5, with a, a pretext of greed. The, the NIV translates this. We didn't put on a mask of greed, so we weren't in it for the money. Verse 6, nor did we seek glory from people, so we weren't looking to become famous. We weren't looking just to, you know, increase our Twitter followers. We weren't looking to just gain a a following or the applause of men. Verse 7, we didn't come demanding our authority, so this wasn't some sort of power grab for us. No, why did we come? Verse 8, because of our love for you. Notice just the extent of his affection there. 
affectionately desirous of you. Notice these emotive words here from the Apostle Paul. And then he says, not only to share the gospel with you, but also our very own selves. The New American Standard translates this, our own lives. So we didn't just come with words. No, we came to give our very lives to you. Because of our love for you. So this was his motivation. His heart for people and his heart for the gospel. But second, I want you to notice also Paul's manner of ministry. The way in which he carried out his ministry. We've seen some of this already, but I want, I want you to just focus with me here on verses 7 to 11. And I just see here five characteristics of how Paul came to them. What, what did his ministry to them look like? And I think you'll see here in a moment how it should shape our own ministry as pastors and as a church. Second, point number two, Paul's manner of ministry. Look at verses 7 to 11. Now again, what Paul's doing here is he's reminding them of what he was like when he was among them, when he brought the gospel to them. And again, why is he doing this? Well, because his character and reputation are being questioned. And as a result, the gospel and their faith is in jeopardy. So he's defending himself in order to preserve the integrity of the gospel. So notice these five characteristics of Paul's manner of ministry and really any faithful ministry. Look first, he says, our gentleness. Our gentleness. Verses 6 and 7, he was gentle. Go back to verse 6. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Demands, what's he talking about there? Well, based on what he says next, if you notice in verse 7, about his coming with gentleness, it seems then the demands here would have been harsh demands about the authority he deserves as an apostle. Though we could have made those demands on you, Paul says, because we're apostles of Christ. We didn't do that. Paul could have, he could have come to Thessalonica demanding they recognize his authority as an apostle. Because after all, he had been commissioned by and with the authority of Jesus himself. But he didn't do that, even though he had every right to. Now, how did he come to them? Look at verse 7. When we came, we were gentle among you. So, yes, Paul and Silas preached the gospel with boldness. They came with the authority of the apostles. But if you were to interact with them personally, there would be this discernible gentleness among them. There wasn't a trace of harshness in these guys. No, there wasn't a trace of being power-hungry authoritarians. There's no bully pulpits going on here in Thessalonica. We were gentle. In fact, look at verse 7. Notice this beautiful word picture here used to describe their gentleness in verse 7. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. What a wonderful picture of tenderness and compassion and care. I mean, there isn't a more tender picture, is there, than a mother nursing her child? And Paul says, that's how we came. It was like that. John Stott writes, 
it's a lovely thing that a man as tough and masculine as the Apostle Paul would have used this feminine metaphor. He writes, we all need to cultivate more in our pastoral ministry the gentleness, love, and self-sacrifice of a mother. He's gentle. Second, notice second trait, he's affectionate. Verse 8. We already saw this a moment ago, but look there again, verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you. The NIV translates it, we loved you so much. We loved you so much that we were ready. That word ready there, it means we were well pleased. We, were, we took great delight in this. We were delighted, notice, to share with you not only the gospel of God, so not only our teaching, but also our own selves, literally our souls, our very lives with you, because you had become very dear to us. So notice, Paul's ministry isn't just preaching. It isn't just doctrine. It's deeds of love. It is affectionate, heartfelt love for people to whom he ministers to. Affectionate, caring. He was loving. And my friends, sadly, as, as I look at many ministries and I look at many churches and I look at many pastors, even today, I, I oftentimes don't see ministries, I don't see pastors, I don't see churches shaped by gentleness and compassion and affection. I remember a seminary professor saying to us one time, your people will not listen to you preach to them until they know that you love them. And church, on behalf of your pastors, I want to say, we love you. We love you. And it is, it is our joy and delight to give of our very selves in serving you. Which leads to part, or trait number three, notice, their self-sacrifice. Look there, verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be burden, a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. In other words, Paul's saying we, we selflessly served you. E even though Paul, he had the right to receive financial support from the churches that he ministered to, we, we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 where he says this. And elsewhere, he insists that ministers of the gospel, they should be compensated financially for their service. As you remember, Brian showed us a few months ago in 1 Timothy chapter 5. However, notice Paul says whether or not in, in order to not be a burden to this church or not to jeopardize his ministry among this church, Paul, he's working hard among them, he says, most likely as a tent maker, Acts chapter 18, so that, verse 9, he might not be a burden to them while he preached the gospel to them. In other words, he's saying, I wasn't in it for the money. Again, distinguishing him from the, the charlatans, the con men who would be in it just for financial gain. So yes, the laborer is deserving of his wages, but Paul says, our delight is in serving Christ and in loving you. This is self-sacrifice. And let me just take this opportunity to thank you as a church 
because I didn't get to preach on 1 Timothy 5 of paying me a salary to do what I do. I, I can't even set up a tent, let alone make one. So I've got two theology degrees. So if I'm not doing this, I'm probably flipping burgers. But no, seriously, it, it, is, it never ceases to amaze me that you are so generous and I get paid to do this. I get paid to study and preach the Bible and pastor you. Thank you for that. So his selfless sacrifice, Paul wasn't in it for the money. Fourth, notice his blameless conduct. Verse 10, notice this threefold repetition in his ministry. You are witnesses and God also. You know it, God knows it, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you. You, you can just imagine the 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 slander, what they're saying about Paul, but Paul says, you were witnesses. You, you know this. You saw this, my conduct. So this is about Paul's integrity. This is about Paul's godliness, meaning his ministry, it was above reproach. He wasn't sinless, and no pastor is, but he was blameless. You couldn't charge him with anything. Blameless conduct. And then fifth and finally, notice his fatherly exhortation and instruction. Look at verses 11 and 12. He shifts here now, notice, from the imagery of a mother to the imagery of a father. Verse 11. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you. So he moves from motherly affection that he had for them now to fatherly instruction. And so from a mother's tenderness to a father's responsibility to teach and to equip and to encourage and to train his children. He exhorted them. He, had, he encouraged them. He challenged them. That, that's what good dads do. Faithful fathers don't shy away from their responsibility to exhort and encourage and challenge their children, even especially when it's not welcomed. No. And not only that, he set a good example for his children in the faith. One commentator writes, though many fathers might adopt the practice of do as I say, not as I do, Paul is burdened with a concern to set them an example Though many fathers might have a passive attitude, adopting the path of least resistance to have a quiet life, Paul is thoroughly involved in wanting to encourage his children in the faith onward to Christian maturity. He's like a father encouraging them. And notice in verse 12, then, the content of his exhortation and his encouragement was that they walk in a manner worthy of the gospel and in verse 12, look there, he says, we exhorted each one of you, each one. Not just y'all, but they had names, they had faces. These were, these were people, they weren't just numbers. No, that's not how this man did pastoral ministry. He didn't just preach the gospel to, him, to them, he gave himself to them. He wasn't just a good communicator, he was a pastor. And they knew it. And this was Paul's manner of ministry. And so ends Paul's self-defense. And so, no doubt, 
some of you are probably thinking, what does this have to do with us? What? How does Paul's example apply to us? Two points of application before we move briefly to that final point. The first related to your pastors. The second relates to us as a church. How do we apply Paul's motivation and manner of ministry? Number one, first, Paul's motivation and manner of ministry here gives us a model of pastoral ministry. This is a model of pastoral ministry. Just notice the model here. And this is the model for your pastors. This is the model for anyone who would aspire to pastoral ministry. This is the model. This is the biblical model. Just notice. First, single-minded ambition to please God. Second, boldness in the face of opposition. Third, gentle care of those under one's watch. Fourth, affection for those to whom you preach. Five, self-sacrifice on behalf of others. Six, faithful encouragement and exhortation. Seven, God-centered motives in everything. That's the motive. That's the model. A biblical pastoral ministry. So allow me just to speak to our current pastors and elders. I'm the only one actually here this morning, so they can listen in later, but I'm going to speak to us and perhaps those future ones as well. Brothers, this is the standard that God has called us to right here. And he holds us to. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1, this is the standard. And this is what we should be pursuing. This is what we should be modeling. This is what we should be aspiring to by the grace of God. And and we are mainly, notice, accountable to him. Not to you primarily, to him. Verse 4, we seek to please God who tests our hearts. Verse 5, God is our witness. So brothers, we answer to God and God alone for this. And this is the model of pastoral ministry, and it is God who approves and tests the hearts of pastors. And brothers, our high calling is clear. What is this high calling? We'll look at verse 4. That we have been entrusted with the gospel. That word entrusted, it it carries the idea of stewardship, of being a steward, meaning something that doesn't belong to us, but has been entrusted to our care. And Paul says, what has been entrusted to us is the precious message of the gospel, And we have no liberty to alter that message. We have no liberty to change the content of that message. We can't try to make it more palatable for people. No, we have been charged, we have been assigned to look after it in a way that the owner intends. And at some future point, he will assess how we've handled it. So church, on behalf of myself and your elders... 
When I say that we understand the weight of this responsibility, we do. And we promise by the grace of God to treasure the gospel personally, to proclaim the gospel faithfully, and to preserve and protect it vigilantly. Because we've been entrusted with it. But, some of you are thinking, what if I'm not a pastor? Does this have any application for me? Yes, it does. Application number two. Paul's motivation and manner of ministry here informs all church ministry. All church ministry. Not just pastoral ministry. Every church has a, a philosophy or a model of ministry, meaning the way in which they do ministry. You may not realize this, but they do. They have a model. They have a, a philosophy of what ministry should look like. And so for some churches, it might be what we would call an attractional model. So what that means is I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to sell a good product so I can attract as many people as I possibly can. That's a model of ministry. So it's really consumer-driven approach to ministry. Or some churches would say, no, it's the pastors, it's the deacons, it's a select few who do the ministry of the church. But here at Second Baptist Church, we are committed to what might be called an Ephesians 4 model of ministry. Or you might better say an every member ministry model. Because we believe this is the biblical model of ministry. I want you to see it with me in Ephesians chapter 4. If you look here for just a moment, It'll be up on the screen for you as well. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Look what Paul says here about ministry in the church. And he says, And he, Christ, gave to the church the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastor teachers. So notice the biblical model here. To equip the saints. Now who's that? That's you. That's, that's the church member. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. For the building up of the body of Christ. So who's doing the ministry? It isn't primarily the pastors. It's you. It's, it's the church. And so beloved, th this means that verses 1 to 12 are your model for ministry as well. This is how you should go about ministry in the church. This is how we should be ministering to one another. This is what should guide and govern how we care for each other in this church. And so I just want to zero in here on verse 8. I mean, yes, we could apply all of what we've seen here in these characteristics of Paul's ministry and his motivations, but I just want you to focus in on verse 8 as a biblical model for real, authentic, transformative ministry here at Second Baptist Church. Because this was Paul's method. Look at verse 8. Notice that the overarching point that stands out, to me at least, in all that Paul says about his own ministry here is the time he spent with them. I mean, he wasn't there long. Maybe three Sabbath days tells us anything, probably a little over a month maybe. But he was intentional. 
It, it's like a nursing mother. It's like a faithful father. In fact, look at verse 8. He didn't simply share the gospel with them. He also endeavored to share his life with them. His very soul. And so I, I, I think, church, this is very instructional for us in how we should think about how we do ministry in this church. Church life together. That, that body life together as a church, it isn't just a few hours we spend together on a Sunday morning. No, it is giving of ourselves to one another. It is, it is the biblical model here of, of giving our very lives to each other. And Paul saw that his own ministry among the Thessalonians, in order to see them become mature, devoted, faithful followers of Jesus, it meant being ready to give his very soul for them. In other words, let, let, me, let me share my life with you. Let me show you with my life how to follow Jesus. That's how ministry should be happening in the church. Can we say that? And beloved, this is why we desire that every member of Second Baptist Church would be actively involved in a small group where this kind of life relationship is happening. This is why we desire for you to be intentionally involved in each other's lives because real ministry, real ministry is about living life together. And, and this is where I believe we'll begin to see real transformative ministry happen in the life of this church. And here's why that matters. Here's why that matters. Because Paul's overall aim here, we, we have, church, all been entrusted with the gospel. Not just pastors. We have all been entrusted with the gospel. And Paul says in verse 8 that effective ministry requires not only the message, it does require the message, but not only the message, it also is a message that shapes the way the messenger lives. And if the messenger and the message don't line up, then it will undermine and discredit the message. That's what this whole passage has been about. And so there's really here an encouragement not only to share the message, we've been entrusted with the message, but it should shape the way we live together as a church. And what, what is this message? Well, finally, just notice in conclusion here. Let me just stir you up by way of reminder. I want to just zero in on verse 2 and in verse 12. Look here with me for a moment. Paul's message in ministry. Third, finally. What was Paul's message when he came to Thessal Thessalonica? And he tells us very clearly what his message was in verse 2 and in verse 12. First, notice, what was his message? His message was the gospel of God. The gospel of God. Look at there, verse 2. We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. In other words... This isn't man's gospel. It, it wasn't the product of Paul's own imagination here. No, he had received this gospel as a revelation from God. That's the origin of the gospel. It's God's gospel. 
It is the good news of God to the world. And what is this good news? We'll notice back, we saw it last week. Look there, verse 10, that Jesus Christ delivers us from the wrath of God by dying in our place for our sins on the cross and that by his substitutionary sacrifice, sinners can now be saved and reconciled to God. And this is all God's doing, he says. It was God's gospel. And at Christmas time, I mean, that's what we're celebrating, that God, he didn't just come in words, he came in a person. Incarnational ministry here. And, and, and it's the gospel of God. And this is what made Paul so bold. This is, this is what he knew he had been entrusted with and he was unashamed of it because he knew it was the power of God of salvation to everyone who believes it was the gospel of God. And so, too, church, we have been entrusted with this gospel. But there's a second part to his message. Not to be confused with the first, but it's still important. And we see it there in verse 12. Look there. Of all the things... Paul could have exhorted and encouraged and challenged them in. What was his message to these newly converted Christians in Thessalonica? Notice verse 12. To walk in a manner worthy of God. What does that mean? Friends, it means that our gospel proclaiming and our gospel living must go hand in hand. Only the gospel can save, yes. But the gospel message must transform the life of the messenger or it undermines the message. And Paul's going to show us this as we enter into chapters 4 and 5 of how the gospel should shape our life. But what does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of God? Because I don't know about you, but there are many times where I recognize I'm not worthy how could I ever be worthy? D.A. Carson helpfully writes this, and I close with this. To conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel does not suggest we should try harder in order to secure something. It's already been secured by the blood of Jesus. It's, it's secure. That's not why we do it. No. Not to secure something, but it suggests that because something has already been secured, we should try harder out of gratitude and recognition that this is what the gospel has saved us for. We are to be diligent to live up to the good news that we have received, the good news that has saved us. Or as Paul says in verse 12, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Let's pray. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.2bcmtv.org or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.